Thanks for pressing play. When we come face to face with the raw enormity of the human spirit, it can be truly stunning. Like Grand Canyon kind of stunning. And when we encounter a person who is so magnanimous, they inspire us to ask questions like, what could I do? Could I be making more of a difference? Further, a conversation like the one you're about to hear, and in particular, the story you're about to hear, shows us how much one person can overcome and not just survive what our guest today calls a, quote, ugly past, but go forward successfully and design a life of consequence. By the end of this episode, you will gain a visceral understanding of how a person can literally traverse from the worst imaginable situations as a child to achieving success, happiness, and a deep sense of what he calls true worth. You might also, if you pay attention and listen carefully, find some powerful food for thought about parenting, uncling, anting, or just loving and caring for children in your life and how adults can impact young people in new and different ways. Our guest today taught me a lot. His name is Peter Mutumbazi. And Peter did not get that name until he was two years old. You see, the newborn death rate in the small Ugandan village where he was was so high that parents waited till they knew their child would be viable before they would even give them names. Peter grew up in shocking poverty, was called garbage by his father and physically abused by his father. Peter ran away from home and by 10 years of age, he became a quote unquote street kid in the capital of Uganda, Kampala. Today, Peter lives in America and he's living a legendary life. As a foster dad, he's fostered over 30 children and he's on a mission to help increase foster parenting, to help care for the most vulnerable children in our country. Peter's foundation is called Now I Am Known, and you can find that at nowiamknownfoundation.org. And Now I Am Known is also the title of his bestseller, with a subtitle of How a Street Kid Turned Foster Dad Found Acceptance and True Worth. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We're the Real Dialogue Podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Now, my friends at Acceleration Economy are hosting a legendary event called the Digital CIO Summit, taking place April 4th, 5th, and 6th, 2023. And it's not a stretch to say that some of the smartest people in the technology industry are going to be participating. And when some of the biggest brains in the world are willing to share their thinking, particularly at a moment like this, uh, staring down the future that we are all staring down, this is an incredible opportunity to learn from legendary CIOs like FedEx's Rob Carter, ASU's uh, Lev Gonick, and Goya Foods' Suvajit Basu, and many others. And they're going to share how to harness the power of technology, how to look forward and grow and scale your business. Also, I will be speaking at the event, but please don't let that stop you from participating. April 4, 5, and 6, 2023, registration is free. How do you like that? Free, gratis, free at AECIOSummit.com. 
aecio.com. That's aecio.summit.com. And I hope to see you there. Now, get your mind in a different place. And hey ho, let's go. Peter, it sure is a joy to meet you. I've been looking forward to our conversation for quite a while. Me as well. I've really been excited, and, and today I could not miss it at all. Now, I'm, I'm curious, how many children are in the house living with you, if maybe not in the house at this exact moment? <laughs> right now, I have six. So I have 15-month-old, three-year-old, seven, eight, 16, and 18. Six children from the youngest is? 15 months. 15 months, who we just met, right? What was her name again? We call her Bella. Bella. Was that the one with the hair that I just met? Yes. Yes, Bella. Beautiful. Bella. Mm-hmm. And the oldest one is how old? 19 years old. 19 years old. And so um, right now it's six. And uh, there's normally a lot of children in your life, yes? <laughs> yes, there's, you know, there's always... Uh, you know, lots of children, and you know, I've had thirty in the last five years. So it's it's been it's been a roll. Thirty, yes, thirty kids, uh, and I've enjoyed it in the last five years. In the last five years, and how many kids overall since you started this adventure that you've been on with all these children? Um, well, I've been with thirty-two. You know, so 32. I've only been yeah, I've only been a foster parent for almost you know almost six years. Okay, only only thirty-two. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> Yes. Chris, I would like to have 20 if they could allow me, seriously. 20 at a time? 20 at a time, yes. Especially teenagers, you know, or or pregnant moms. You know, I would prefer to protect the mother and she stays with the child. So in that way, I get to mentor both of them. And so um, most most people want to run from teenagers, Peter, and and you want to adopt them, at least foster them for a while. And so why is it you like teenagers so much? Well, I feel so for me, I was rescued when I was 16 years old, almost, you know, and I can see the life of teens on how important it is. I'm not saying a three year old doesn't have the same opportunity, but they have a longer time to make it up. You know, when you're 15 and you have only, you know, three years left in the false care system and you have nowhere to go, you know, it, it's critical to, you know, for anyone to step up and guide you, you know, to the world you've never lived, you don't know. Uh, so I feel like they're the most, you know, vulnerable, you know, but also that need the most. But also too, they talk. So they talk back to me when they're not happy. They dress themselves. They eat when they want. Well, they eat most of the time. So teens are, you know, they, they're, they're easy, I would say. They're easy. Yes. Incredible. Mm-hmm. So I think you have uh, a lot to teach many of us about uh, parenting and, in my case, uncling um, and, and, and loving children. And I absolutely want to get into all of that because uh, you're just this, and I'm sure you've been told this before, but there's something about your face, your eyes, your smile, your cheeks, like... You know, when Tom and the team at Interview Valet reached out and sort of shared your story and, and, and I saw your photo, like, and I know this might sound corny, but I kind of fell in love just with your face. Aww. And so there's something, you know this, right? You know there's something very unique about you. Right. I hear it from my kids as well. Like sometimes they're like, Dad, I don't know how to be mad because when I'm looking at you, it's hard to be mad at you. And I'm like, 
what does that mean? <laughs> I thought it was my accent, but you didn't listen to me. You just saw my face. So maybe, I don't know, joy, truly a joy. I, I love to, to, to show it, live it every day. So, so thank you for that. And maybe, you know, your, your upbringing and your, what most people today call origin story is incredibly unique. And you've clearly overcome so much. So if you wouldn't mind, could you take me back to when you were a little kid? Yes, absolutely. So I grew up in a small village called Kabale at the border of Uganda and Rwanda, you know, where life was, it's hard to explain to an American, but life was miserable in every shape, form you could imagine. One, it's mountainous, so there's no really water. Like if you live on the mountain or on the hills, you have to go down the valley to get water. And at the age of three, I can go get a gallon of water. At the age of three, you know, that I had to learn to contribute to the family. You know, I had to go to the garden and help my mom because we couldn't afford food to to we couldn't afford to buy food, but we had to grow the food that we eat. So from the get go. Life was miserable, you know. I also got to learn that I didn't have a name until when I was two years old. Why? Because for every 100 children were born in my village, 60 would die before the age of two. So most moms were afraid to name a child because they didn't want to get attached. And it wasn't like because they didn't like. But think about if you name your child Peter and they live for only two years, any name, Anyone called Peter will always remind you of who your kids are. So I think for me, that was the, the world that I lived in. You know, I never had one meal a day. We had a meal every other day. I had never had chicken only on Christmas. I never had beef only on Easter. I never had to choose a meal. Like there was never food, you know. And then at the age of four, I began to realize that my father was different from other dads. He was abusive in every shape, form you could imagine. So for me, Poverty was likely to take my life, but also my dad, inside the home where I could have felt safe, it was probably the most um, agonizing place to be because of my father. You know, as, as kids, we worked so hard to get one word from dad, well done, son. But for me, I never had one kind word from my, from my dad. I was mainly known as garbage. I wish you were never born so I don't have to feed you. Dogs around me are better than you. That's what I had in the morning, in the evening, before I went to bed. So for me, I never wanted to see the light of another day because today was hard enough that for me, the idea of tomorrow, I just did not want to go there because it was hard enough. So that is my background, you know, and it wasn't just as poor, but everyone around us was so there wasn't anything to look up and say, I wish I could be like so-and-so. I wish I could be like them. No, all of you are poor. You, All the kids in the village, you go fetch water. You all kids in the village don't have shorts. You only wear, you know, a T-shirt because it's the only cloth you have. So that is really a little glimpse of my background as a little boy. Thank you. It's, um, it's really uh, incredible to try and even begin to imagine. So you didn't get a name um, until you were three, is that right? Yes, until when I was two, because for two. most kids, you know, two. So for most kids who were born, they would die. So my mother, I think, was 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 waiting to see if he makes it. You know, then I'll give him a name. So he gave me Peter Habiyadamana, which means a gift given me by God. You know, and the hard mm. part, and the hard part as a kid as well. I think seeing the abuse that was coming towards me was going towards my my mother as well. So. The one, the one mother that loved me the most, that protected me the most, 
was also receiving the same abuse. And most of them because she was trying to advocate for us. Let's say she went home and said, you know, hey, kids haven't eaten. Well, she got the beatings for that. So that is kind of the mother that I had that I loved the most, but I could not protect as a little boy. And you said you never heard one kind word from your father? Never. Never had one word. Not one. No matter what I did, to just hear one word, son, that was good. Son, you're doing well at school. Son, I'm proud of you. Not once. Not once. And the opposite, yes, Peter? Yes. H- horrible opposite. H- horrible opposite. And, and, you know, it wasn't just verbal, but also physical, you know? Uh, and sometimes he would go days without buying food. So it was a way of punishing me and my siblings and my mother. So he wasn't a good dad at all. So that's why I really, I don't know, I never saw a glimpse of hope in any way, shape, form. And you think your father withheld food when he could have provided food as a punishment of some sort? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, literally, I, you know, of course, as a kid, would hear mom say, hey, the kids haven't eaten. Is there a way you could get at least one meal? You know, and he would say, I, I don't care. You can starve to death and... Or sometimes, we, you know, my mom had to come and sleep in her bedroom because she asked food for us and she got the beatings for that. So as a little boy, it was hard to watch. It was hard to be, um, you know, to see a, a mom that loves you that much, that she's trying to protect you. But she's trying also to, to provide for you, but she gets to be punished for us. For me, the guilt, you know, I think I really dealt with at a very early age. You're going to make me cry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know what it's like to be a little boy and love your mother. But I don't know what it's like to experience what you just described. How many siblings um, do you have, Peter? I have six. I lost one. So right now I have five. You have five. Yes. And so um, how do you make it from this small, poor village where you didn't get a name because till you were two because so many children die and then at three and four years old you're going and, and walking to get your own water and you're feeling lucky if you have a meal a day and i assume the uh education system isn't exactly world class is that would that be fair to say <laughs> Well, even if it was there, I mean, it was $5, but my family could not afford $5. Or my father would rather go drink than send us to school, you know? Mm-hmm. In, uh, and the reason why kids died was malaria. If you haven't eaten for days and get malaria, you're going you're gonna to lose your life in 24 hours. So it wasn't like it wasn't something incurable. Most of the time it was lack of basic nutrition that when you got a simple disease, it will kill you. You know, so for me, as you know, as kids, as we grow older, you get to understand the abuse in a different way. So, you know, at the age of eight, nine, I began to realize, like, you know what? I think my father one day will kill me. That's what I. That's what I felt. That's what I saw. You know. So at the age of ten, he had sent me to buy cigarettes at night. It was three in the morning, and it rained, so the cigarettes got destroyed. So I thought, oh my, he's gonna beat me to death. So. In the moment, I don't know, I thought, I'm going to run away. I'm not going to go back home. And running away wasn't like I was looking for a better life. It was more of, I would rather die in the hands of a stranger than my own father. And so at about 10 years old, you did run away? 
Yes, went to the bus station and I asked the lady, hey, of all these buses, which one goes the farthest? You know, of course, she showed me and I got on that bus. I had never been 20 miles away and I went 500 kilometers away. And it wasn't that I was looking for a future or a better life. I think for me, it was more of a societal move. If I die, I would rather never give the grief to my father to bury me or to kill me himself, you know? So for me, running away was a way of saying, I'm going to not let you give you the joy of taking my life. So that's why I ran away. And, you know, of course, I ended up in Kampala. And one option I had was to be a street kid. And I became a street kid for five years, from 10 to 15. And so what does it mean to be a street kid in Kamal? Oh, boy. You know, I think the abuse was a hundred times worse than at home. But there was a difference. These were not related to me, you know. If they abused me sexually or they abused me physically or told me I was worthless, it, it, it really, in some way, I was worthless anyway, you know. So there wasn't anything that I needed to fight for. And I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm useless. Uh, and that became my life. Of course, I found families. I found other kids who were, forced, who were uh, street kids and, and became you know, family, and that they are the ones who taught me how to survive and, and survive for five years. Lived in the garbage, ate from the garbage, slept in the sewer, you know, and yes, we became the scumbags of the, of the earth for the people in Kampala. And that's how they viewed us. And that's how also they treated us as well. And this begins roughly at 10 years of age. 10 years of age until when I was 15 years old. And then what happens at 15, Peter? So as street kids, we usually steal. We'd steal food while we're helping because we're used as cheap labor. So we would steal food while we're helping. It was also easier if I'm carrying a bunch of banana and take one. You won't know, but I helped you, you know. So I tried to steal from this man and, uh, he, you know, before I could take it, he said, hey, what's your name? I was like, wait a minute. You want to know my name? Wait, wait, wait. His reason. I had lived on the streets for five years. No one single human being had ever asked me, what's your name? You know, so in some way, when he said, what's your name? That rattled me, scared me, but at the same time, reminded me of my mother, because that's what my mother called me, Peter. So by me telling him my name is Peter, I felt like he was kind of really taking me back home to my mother. You want to know my name? I was told out garbage. I am a street kid who's treated like garbage. You want to know my name? Why? But also as street kids, any positive meant danger. So just, just because you're kind didn't mean that that was a good thing. Not to us was, oh, danger, danger. So as soon as I put his food down, he gave me something to eat and he left. Though he gave me food and though he asked my name, that was a sign for me to run for my life. Because any kindness, either from my father or from anyone, followed with abuse. So that's what I thought. He's going to abuse me. So I, I, better, I, better, I better go right now. Uh, and that's how I met this man. So he came the next week and then the next week. So by the fourth week, I kind of knew what he drives, when he comes. And he was the only human being that called me by my name. So I was like, man, I look forward to someone knowing me by just my name. And so he fed me for one year. And one day he said, Peter, if you had an opportunity to go to school, would you like to go to school? And I laughed. I was like, this guy is foolish, you know? Don't you know I'm garbage? Don't you know I'm a street kid? Don't you know, like, I have no hope? Like, don't you know that? Why would you offer me something that you know deeply that is not worth, or I'm not worth it? So that's why I said, I laughed and I just walked away, you know? But, he changed his language the next time he asked me. He said, hey, if you go to school, there'll be lunch, 
dinner and breakfast. That's all I had. Dinner? Wait, there's food there? Sure, I'll go. So for me, it was the curiosity of food because that's all I lived for. You know, as a street kid, there was no food. That's what you stole. That's what every, everything I thought of was in the form of how do I get a meal? And that was my life every day. Wow. How old were you the first time you weren't hungry? Oh, man, I was maybe 16. Once he put me in school, you know, it took me a while to understand that there would be food always because for me, I always felt like food is going to run away. You know, food, they're going to kick me out. Food isn't going to come back uh, in some way. So it took me maybe until 16 years old that I realized like, oh, all I need to eat, if I go to class, then they'll feed me. If I don't beat someone up, then they'll feed me. If I don't steal, then they'll feed me. So once I began to learn, like, there are ways I can keep getting that meal, it was the first time that I realized that I can get a meal. And so you you are lured into school by this uh, stranger who befriends you over a period of about a year. And when he shares with you there's food at school, you think, well, I want to go check that out. And so you go to school. Correct. It was more of, that can't be true. But since they can't fe- feed the, <laughs> the, yes, they nobody can- eats three meals a day. Nobody, because I had never seen it, never heard of it, even in my family. So I was like, wait, is that possible? But also remember, he fed me for one year and a half. So he gained trust from me, you know? So yes. for me, it was more of, this guy, he's full of baloney. But since he's been feeding me for a, a year and a half, I'll go check it out and see if it's true. So for me, it was more of wanting to know, can that be true? And sure enough, it was true. It was true. And was he, well, let me ask you this question. Uh, Other than your mother up until this stage of your life, how many adults would you say uh, were kind to you on any kind of an ongoing basis? Most moms, you know, yes, we, we got a lot of abuse for, from, from women, but the majority were a little bit kind, you know. You had had other kind experiences with adults before this, this guy who put you in school? Right. From, but from a mom point of view, you know, that they fed you or they, they protect you if you're going to be bitten. But that, that's all. But this level of kindness, I had never seen it until this man. Like, to think about, I was at my lowest in life, a thief little boy who lived in the trash and stole food and fought for food in the garbage like any other stray animal. That was my life. For him to see me and treat me like a human being at my lowest was the greatest thing, I think, for me that I felt he was different than any other human being I knew. Wow. And what what was his name, Peter? His name was uh, uh, Jacques, but we called him James. James. You called him James. And so you're in school now and you're having good meals every day and you're beginning to feed your, your body and your brain a little bit. Um, and then what happens? Well, so he invited me to go to his home, you know, but also something he did for me. I had never had kind words. I never had words of affirmation. You know, he would say, Peter, you're brave. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm brave? He said, you know, I would never live on the streets for 
for a day. But for you to live on the streets for five years, you're the bravest kid I ever met. So he began to use my negative into positive, you know, and that really changed my the way I looked at things. He would say, Peter, you belong because I never belonged anywhere. You know, he would say, Peter, you're a gift to us. I mean, that that was probably the greatest affirmation word. Like I was a gift, really. My my father always thought I was garbage. You know, he's a stranger who says, but you give to us because you teach us how to love. And I didn't know that. The more I had those words uh, of kindness, I think the more I began to believe in myself and I began to do well and the teachers as well. You know, every time I got an F, they didn't say you're a failure, but they said, Peter, good job, you know, and then I'll get a D and they say, good job. And then I say, if you believe in me, then I can get a B, I can get a C. And that's really how I began to really do well. So I finished high school and then I went to University of Uganda. And then that's how I went to University in England. And that's how I came to the States. It sounds like one of our uh, furry friends is going off on us. <laughs> yes, that means the kids just got home. And so, um, so you graduate high school. And how do you make it to the University of Uganda? Because I got to believe that's a big leap, right? Absolutely. You know, I think for me, it took me a while because my life was food, you know. So once food was there, then I began to believe like, wait a minute, there's more for, there's more about me probably that I didn't know I had, you know. So once I began getting a D, then I was like, I can get a C and then I get a C. I can get a B. Oh, then air became, you know, an everyday thing. And that's when I realized that there was more about me or more potential in me that I, 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 didn't, I didn't know. But through the kindness of this man, he really helped me understand what I was capable of doing. So now I began to dream, you know, and he became my idol as well. You know, he was the guy I watched, but I knew he went to college. So I was like, if I want to be like him, I better go to school. He was kind, you know, that I knew he loved his job as well. So I knew if I wanted to be anything, I need to do to do that as well. And what did he James also do for a living? He uh, he helped children. He worked for the most vulnerable children. So he was Canada. like a, a social worker or something along those lines. No, he was the CEO of a company that looked after or you know funded programs for kids. Oh wow! And he took you under his wing directly. Absolutely, you know. But the other part, he, the other part he did, he invited me to his home. So once I finished, once I was at school for more than six months, he said, "Come and live with us." So I had a place to be. So now I began to see what a father looks like. Now I began to see what a family looks like. Now I began to see a man that speaks kind words to his family, and that became my idol. Like, and if there's a family, I want to be like it. If there's, I so now I had the example in some way to live up to. And that's really what changed my life, that I excelled in school. And then I went to university. I got a scholarship to study the government in Uganda. And then I got a scholarship to study in England. And then I went back home. And then I got a scholarship to come and study here in the United States. And that's how the kindness of one man changed my entire life. And listen, Christopher, not just my family, not just me, but my entire family. I'm the oldest of five. And all my siblings have gone through university, not because they could do it. I think they said, if Peter can do it, we can do it as well. But also I knew I could never take them away from the abuse from home, but I knew I can give them education that I was given. And so it became my, my mission to, to send them to school. And they all went to university and, and are doing well. You know, it's amazing, you know, what the kindness of one stranger on how truly that changed my entire family. Whew. 
So I'm just uh, digesting everything you said. Um, and so as a result of this gift James gave you, he put you in a position to A, be an example for your siblings as he was for you. And B, I assume somewhere along the line, help or guide you in some way to uh, find the money and the scholarships and whatever else it was going to take for you to work with your siblings to get them through university as well. Um, and so I would imagine navigating all of that and the financial part of that and the geography part of that and the relationships part of that and all the life things that go with trying to get, you know, try to try to make five good, successful people in the world is a big job. Yes. So when I came to school here, for me, I had to work. Literally, sometimes I would sleep for just six hours. So I worked as security. I did every job you gave me. I did walk dogs. I mean, so I could provide for my family. And, you know, and, and, and to being in the United States, I, I knew, you know, there's nothing I, <laughs> there's nothing that can stop me from doing whatever I needed to do. No matter how, I never saw any job as a small job. Anything I can do as a student, because I was restricted as a student, that I can only work for 20 hours a week. So I made sure that I could do whatever it takes to truly help my siblings. And, and, and that was a successful uh, to be able to do that. So you were going to school here in the United States. You could only work 20 hours a week. So you worked those 20 hours a week. And somehow between grants and your own work and, and, and I'm sure other things, uh, you were able to send money home to help finance your siblings to go to school. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's what I did. Now, let me ask you a very specific question. Do you remember, Peter, under what type of visa or program you were able to come and study in the United States and then ultimately to be able to live here? Yeah, so I came on L visa. L visa is for student visa. So once I finished, you know, once I finished uh, my schooling, I went on, on you know, you, you're given one year to, to exercise what you've learned. And then I worked for Compassion International, which is a child development uh, organization. And then they said, Peter, we love what you do for how you advocate for kids, you know, because they were seeing thousands and thousands of people sponsoring kids through just sharing my journey. And they're like, we would like to process the visa for you so you can work in the United States. So that's what they did for me. Uh, and then I got a green card and then uh, I became a U.S. citizen uh, just three years ago. So that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. I too am an immigrant to this country, a naturalized American from Canada. Mm. And to say my upbringing was different from yours would be a radical mischaracterization. So I wasn't running from anything when I came here. But we do share a hairdo and we do share being immigrants. But the reason I ask you that question, this may seem a little off topic, but there's a raging debate in the United States now about immigration. And I think uh, Americans having a debate about immigration is a very, very important thing. And in my opinion, and I'm biased, I am an immigrant to this country. And I've worked in Silicon Valley for over 25 years. And it's fascinating to me that a such a high percentage, I would say at least 50% of the entrepreneurs that I have worked with uh, in venture-backed, high, you know, super impressive Silicon Valley startups are not born in this country doing this in this country. Anyway, my point is this. The United States was created and built by immigrants. And I believe 
we need a shit ton more Peters in our country. And that's the conversation we're not having about immigration. How do we attract the legendary people from all around the world who are going to bring the kinds of things that you have brought to uh, build this country into a country that we can all be proud of? Because (laughs) I'm proud you're here. Thank you. Thank you. So I think I know the answer to the question, but I sort of got to ask it. What makes you decide that you are going to become this, what I would call it, I say this with love and admiration, this radical foster father? Well, so when I came to the United States, I struggled a little bit, you know, of seeing the wealth and seeing how much food was thrown away. And think coming from a place where I never had, you know, a, a meal that I could count on to see how much food was thrown away. I think I really struggled with my faith and belief. Like, wait a minute, some people have so much throw away and others are dying for a lack of, you know? But then as I really thought through, I was like, wait a minute, I was fortunate to, to, to I'm fortunate to be in the United States. And so I'm going to do the best I can to truly not conform to what everyone else does, but to really maybe stand up and do something better because someone told me how to do better. And then I found about false care kids and I was like, wait a minute, we can be the wealthiest country on the planet and we have half a million kids that have nowhere to sleep. Like, is that is that possible? So instead of being a bystander, I said, I want to do something because I understand the trauma that our kids are going through. I understand of being unloved, unwanted, abused in every shape, form, and every home you go to, someone says, Uh, you're not fit to be here. No, you know, that I didn't want to be that. But also the man who took me in, he really changed my life. He showed me, you know, I think for me, I have a motto in my life that too much is given, much is required. I was given so much and it's my time to pay forward, to help others as well, you know, that truly be there for others. But there was a question mark. I had traveled over the world. I've been in more than 100 countries, but I'd never seen a black person who was adapting from Africa or from Asia or from anywhere else. So by lack of that, I thought maybe I don't qualify to do so, you know? So while in Ethiopia, I said, hey, if I wanted to adapt, what do I have to do? They said, well, you have to be married. You have to be either female or you have to be an American or European. For you as an African, by then I was still, you know, on a Ugandan visa. They said, no, you can't be. And I said, Wow. You know? So just so as, for a, me, as a Ugandan man, you couldn't adopt as, as a single man? As a single man, no. Not anywhere in, in, in most countries. They will not allow a, a single, a single man to, to adopt a, a child. To adopt a child, no. Wow. Absolutely. So when I came to United States, I believe the same. Like They will not allow me to be a force parent because I'm a male and I'm single. So I went to the force care as a way of saying, hey, I would like to mentor teenagers. Is there a way you could give me one hour a week so where I can spend time with teenagers? And the social worker said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? I said, I think about it every day, but I don't qualify. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm single and male. They're like, but you can be. I was like, really? I mean, literally, that day I signed up, it was on a Monday. I started my you know, licensing class on Thursday. And four months later, I had my first child. And so since then, I have 20, you know, 32 kids. I've adopted one and I'm in the process of adopting the other three. Again, it, it's not because I have resources. No, it's because someone did stuff for me that I wanted to do that for others, that he showed me what, 
kindness means. He showed me what loving unconditionally means. But he showed me that when we believe in people that sometimes don't believe in themselves, that we are a source and a resource for them to believe in themselves. And I wanted to do the same for kids, you know. And that's really been a joy, you know. I mean, it's amazing that I have, you know, six kids right now who are white. They don't look like me in some way, you know. But it's really been a are joy. They, are they all be, white? They're all white, yes. Not by choice, you know, because I take in... <laughs> no, you get when who you get, them. right? I mean, I assume exactly. I don't know much about the foster program, but I assume when a right. child needs a home, they reach out to you and say, can you? And if the answer is yes, away we go, right? I do. Absolutely. I do, you know, and, and it's really been a joy too. But I also wanted to fight three things. One, I'm from Uganda. We are colonized by the English. And there's a tendency of what where we are told or we, are, we assume that... Why people do good and we are the, the ones to receive it, you know? So for me, I wanted to flip the coin to show like, hey, 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 no, it's not true. That actually we can all make a difference, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and Chris, I, I love it. I th- love it. Th- I have thousands and thousands of followers from African, Asia, and South America. And it's not before, they follow me not because I'm a force that. They don't understand even false care. But they follow me because they get to see a man who looks like them, who is truly making a difference and has family that doesn't look like him. Flipping the coin in how we've always been told, you know. Uh, but the other part is, I live in the United States where sometimes we have assumptions or stereotypes that black men are not good dads. That I wanted to show, I am a good dad to kids who don't even look like me. Like, I am that good in some way. To show that, hey, you know, before you judge, please, you know, here's the stories of us who you, you really don't get to hear. Then the other part, I'm not into, you know, uh, protesting, but I wanted to live a life of protest, you know, that I can have kids who don't look like me, that I can love them and have empathy for them, that I hope someone who sees me different can have the same attitude towards me, have empathy towards me just as much as I have with my kids. Uh, and it's really been a long, you know, a long journey. We, we've been stopped about seven or eight times by the police, you know. I don't get mad. I usually want to shit. What happens with the police? Well, usually when we go to the store, someone will, will, will call the police, say, hey, there's a black man, you know, with five Kids just does, doesn't look right, you know. You're like, oh lord. So when the police stops, usually, we, you know, you you want to share and say, hey, you know, yes, you got the phone call. Yes, you know, you have to follow up. But you know, I'm just a dad. That's all. I'm a dad to these kids, you know. And they're able to understand to say, man, you know, thank you for for truly standing up and and and, and being the example of what we don't really get to see every day, you know. But I make sure that I'm cautious, you know, that I, I stop and follow the rules and, and I travel everywhere we go uh, in my car that we have, you know, I have all the documents to prove that I'm a dad. But it's sad that I have to prove myself. But at the same time, I don't let that distract me, you know, that I want to be a dad to my kids and I love them dearly and nothing is going to stop that for sure. Whew, Peter, you're giving me an advanced class on how to be a human being because the uh, uh, I, I have often said anger is my happy place. Anger is a thing I understand deeply. And were I in your shoes, there would be a big part of me that would want to break somebody's jaw. And, and, and that said, it also saddens the shit out of me to hear that here you are, this incredible man and you're surrounded by your children. None of them are screaming. 
None of them are acting as though anything bad has happened or is happening. They're in the grocery store and they're probably doing the same kinds of things that kids of those age ranges do in the grocery store when they're with their parents. And just Mm -hmm. your presence around four, five, six, however many happen, two, three, however many happen to be with you on this grocery visit, somebody calls the cops. Yes. Even yesterday, and, we went and to the Costco. cops show up when somebody says there's a black man with four children in the grocery store. The cops don't say so. They come no, up, they, they, show they, up. They, they show up. And then what do they say when the cops come up to you in your car or at the grocery <laughs> store or wherever they come up to you? What do they say? I mean, usually, you know, their guns out, out ready to, you know, to attack in some way. And we, we've kind of learned how to respond, you know? And I usually say, you know, they say, hey, are someone called, um, uh, are those your kids? You know, I say, yes, I'm a foster dad, you know? Uh, and, and as quickly as just make sure I say, I have paperwork to prove. Before you, sh- you know, you say anything, pull me out and hear the paperwork for me to approve, you know, to prove to you that I'm a dad. And, and usually they look at them and they, they feel sorry for the call and they say, it's sad, we... It's our job to follow up, but it's sad that someone would call, you know, uh, that, I, that I get to understand. I mean, Christopher, yesterday we were in Casco. You know, in Casco, kids can't test food unless the parents are there, you know, and my kids wanted to. So I said, sure. So we went to the lady and the lady looked at them and said, I will not feed you until you go get your parents. <laughs> and all my kids in unison, they said, but he's right here. What are you telling me I go get my parents? It's right here. And, you know, I mean, I, I approached the lady gentle. I said, I don't want to make a scene, but I want to make this a teachable moment. It's better to always ask. You could have said, you know, hey, man, are these your kids? I would have said yes or no, because you assumed I don't look like them. You ask them to go get their parents. And then I paused. I said, let me ask you an honest question. If I was white, would you have done that? And she said, no, because I see that often. Like I see, you know, and I say, next time, just ask, you know, just can. And that's where I see my role as really to really show and change the narrative of what people think of family, you know, uh, that we can all be family. It doesn't have to be one race only that can, you know, in some way have that role. But we can all be, you know, including us as, as, as black, you know, black dads. Well, and uh, So thank you for that. The other part of it is... Um, uh, one of my favorite books, Peter, of all time is Richard Bach's Illusions. You've read it. Yes. Of course you have. And uh, you may, of course, remember there's so many incredible quotes that he writes in the Messiah's Handbook. And one that has always stayed with me of many from that book is, rarely do people of the same family grow up under the same roof. Mm-hmm. And I'm somebody who is lucky enough to come from a wonderful family who I very much love. And my chosen family is a source of endless joy. And that's a powerful thing. And so this, this, this idea you're putting forward here that um, maybe we need to open the aperture of our minds when we define family, because I would tell you some of my best friends who I call brother don't tell me they're not my brother. Don't tell me they're not my sister. <laughs> right. And don't tell you these are not your children. Right. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. 
Now, um, this approach to parenting you have is, uh, is deeply rooted in empathy, clearly. And I'm sure, because your kids are, can't be different than other kids, there are moments where uh, you're very challenged. There are moments of incredible disappointment. There are moments of bad behavior. There are moments when they do nasty, terrible things to each other. There are moments where they get in trouble for one thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not all sort of moonlight and canoes, right? And right. so, and and you've got a lot of these children. You don't just have a couple. And of right. course, your children have needs that maybe a child who grew up in a, let's just call it a more normal situation with, a, you know, a loving parent or two, but didn't end up, quote unquote, in the system. And, you know, th those children are going to have... Um, challenges that children who are not foster children don't have. Is that a fair fair statement? Yes. So, every child in false care has trauma, yes. Yeah. And so so these are children that need a lot of special attention from dad. Um, and so maybe sort of share with me how you deal with moments of, of, of true struggle and true frustration and, and, and maybe fear or uncertainty. Well, so for me, I'm, I think I'm a little bit more, you know, uh, experienced than most. I was one of that kid. I, I'm the kid who went through every abuse you could imagine in shape form. I, I was that kid, unwanted, unloved, went to bed hungry. So I understand most of my kids, where they come from, you know, to lose your parents and you have no answer why you can't see your parents or, you know, to, to be abused in, in a most horrible where by, by someone and you don't know why when you're five years old that I know where they're coming from. So for me, the approach to, to their trauma or to, to whatever behaviors they have, I approach to what is steering it. Where is it coming from? You know, my kids stealing food isn't a problem at all, you know, but for me it's why, why, sh why are they holding food and taking it into their bedroom? Well, if you went to bed most of your life hungry, and you didn't know where the next meal would come from, yes, I'll, I'll say, I'll take that meal and keep it. And so for me, it has been always not to really focus on the behaviors, but to really see where is it coming from? Because that's how I was helped. Yes, I was a thief. I, I mean, I could fight in a heartbeat, you know, but the person who really helped me got to see. But where, why, was, why was I quick to fight? Because that's all I knew to protect myself. I never had someone protect me. So he said, okay, Peter, we love you. And we want to help you. Not everyone wants to fight. And not everyone, you should respond that way. That you should back off and get to know, hey, you know, maybe they, they have the best intention. The same with my kids. To know when my kid is cussing me and yelling at me, he's not really yelling at me. I happen to be the safest place he can do so. So rather than be angry, to remove myself and say, it's not about Peter. It is today, my kid is angry. That's it's not really about me, but it's what they're feeling. And if I can be there to make sure that they're hard. You know, I tell people that I have teenagers when they're yelling and cussing. It's good. They're talking, you know. They're telling me how they feel. So rather than <laughs> take it rather than take yeah. it personally, rather than take it personally to say, my kid is talking, and I ought to give him the platform and the place to feel safe, that they can say whatever they want to say, even when I don't like the language I'm receiving. But to say, for this child, I want to listen. And that's how fully I've parented. And, you know, with teachers too, I've told teachers, 
you know, before my kid, you know, uh, throws every desk in your class, let me tell you how it, how you can discredit it. You know, hey, he's something you can do. He's because you I start a, you should start a teaching school. <laughs> You you, you, so, you, yes. you could be the guru of de-escalation teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in, 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 and then the thing that society, that's what we do. We get to see the behaviors of the kids, but we never ask why. And I think when we ask why, it really helps us to know how to best help them or to not judge them or to say, man, I feel so bad and sorry for this kid, you know, that I'm going to approach how he's feeling differently, you know. I had a kid who would cry for four hours, nonstop. I'm like, gosh, when, you know? But all at the end, he would say, Papa, can you hold me, you know? And sometimes I looked at him and was like, but you could have told me that four hours ago, you know? But <laughs> Couldn't we have started there? <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. But man, but there was anger going through that he didn't know how to say, but he had to let that feelings out until he was tired and felt it was done that I had to let him say, okay. And I learned how to do that with him. And so we came from three, four hours to three, three to two, three to 30 minutes. And now we are at five minutes, you know? you know. But why? I had to let him first really know and best way on how he can uh, help him by not seeing what he was doing as bad, but seeing that's how he was expressing what he was feeling inside. And I think in that way, we, we really get to love people differently. When we don't, only judge on the outcome, you know, because that's a bandage, but to see really the root of that. And that's what someone did for me that I want to do for my kids every day. Thank you for that. Now, I also sort of feel um, curious to ask you, Peter. Um, we hear stories of people with uh, sort of very difficult um, challenging, horrible experiences, children not being loved, being abused, who grow up and end up doing very, very horrible things in the world um, and be, being very damaging people and often people who perpetuate the pain and sometimes in incredibly horrible ways. And so it, it always makes me wonder, you know, what is it about a person who has a set of facts, an experience that happens to them and one bounces one way and one bounces the other. Or to maybe say it more simply, had you grown up to be a truly horrible person, it would have been very predictable and maybe expected. And I understand James extended a hand and that's incredible. But you also took his hand. And so maybe help me with these sort of seminal stages in life where one could turn one way or one could turn the other. And a set of circumstances would argue that in your case, turning into a bad place would have been incredibly predictable. So how do you, how do you think about that? So for me, I had one enemy as a kid, my father. And he wished the worst for me. So he never saw anything that I could be part or that was worth of anything. So once I understood that, then I said, wait, wait a minute, you know, him not wanting me to success, that was his decision. Me letting be or confirming his prediction, that is my control, 
you know? So for me, I knew, wait a minute, my father wants to fail. So if I do fail, then I've given him the right to say, I told you so. Or in some way, win in some way, like, oh, you know? And I think for me, I didn't want to. I hated my dad so much that I wanted to be the opposite. I've never drunk, not because I cannot drink, no, because drinking was being my father, the guy I hated the most. So for me, the hatred in some way helped me to see the opposite of what I never wanted to be, you know? But also, too, he wanted me to fail. So for me, failing was the making him win. So in some way, me failing was like, man, I cannot let this guy win, you know? So once I began to see that I can actually do better and prove him wrong, that really helped me, you know, because I knew, man, I can use my past in some way to do better and use it as a foundation for me to excel rather than see as a negative but rather embrace it and say, man, I had a shitty dad. He hated me the most, but man, I'm going to turn that and actually make it the positive way, the opposite way, you know? And I think for me, that's how it worked for me, you know, that sometimes when we go through that kind of difficult time, we get stuck in the, uh, the anger of, I hate this guy, but I'm going to do the same thing he did to me to other people you know that we we mirror what happened to us and we do it to others while for me i think i i, I mirrored the opposite of who my father was like and he thought i'll never succeed but i'm gonna prove him wrong you know i don't use curse word but that's all i had from my dad why because i'm like i, I can choose to t- i can choose to tear my tongue because i have control of that so once i learned that i have control of what i can do despite of what he thinks that really helped me to win in some way. Like, hmm, you think I'm garbage? No, I am not, you know. You think I'm not smart? I'll prove you wrong. Hmm. Uh, and that and that really helped me to succeed in, in life because I, and, and, and that's my message. Even writing my book, it was more of how we can be the arts rather than hang or drag your past, but rather how to look at it and say, look, I have an ugly past. I get it, it's mine, but I'm going to use it to do better for myself and for others as well. And I think that is the key to not let the past in some way drag you. And it would literally, it would, it would take away over or it will ruin your future when you choose to take the past with you. But for me, I was like, Mm-mm, I have control in my past and I can choose where I want it to go and how and how far. That was legendary. Thank you. I think I'm probably going to listen to this episode a hundred times and then maybe a hundred more. Oh, um, yes. You're such an extraordinary man. Um, if, if people want to support you in any way, are there things we can do? What, what, what do you want from us? How, how can we support you in this mission? In this mission for me, there are a few things that I would like right now. I want to take, I have two more siblings. I need a home but I need a car. So if we can find a way, again, uh, uh, my greatest need is now an eight-seater to be able to see all my kids. So I can take in two more little ones that need a home, their siblings to some of my kids I have. So that's my greatest need, a form of transportation where we can off it. You know, uh, that's my greatest need. The other part is, uh, you know, we have a foundation now I'm known, you know, whatever you give that I get to really help other kids as well. My, my whole goal or what I devoted my life is to help 
kids who are aging out so we can provide them room. You know, at least if they have where to stay, how can I make sure that I put everything they need? They don't have to worry. The other part is helping, you know, foster parents. You know, sometimes they need an extra mattress or they need an extra bed. You know, how can I provide a little something so we can provide another room, another bed for another child to live in? So those are my two things. One, car. Two, you know, uh, my foundation so we can help more kids. And if you want to know about my story, read my book. Now I'm known, you know, which is available in every store, uh, also on my website as well. And it's, it's it, your story and your book and your life. I mean, holy shit. So I, all I want to maybe other ask you is, uh, who would you like to play you in in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe Edris Iba, Iba, Abba, Iba from England, yeah. you know? Yeah. At least. Uh, yes. Uh you know, Kevin Hart, you know, he's as short as me, so he can, you know, he can do that. Um, You're better you know? looking than he is, but yeah, he's a great, he's a great <laughs> actor for sure. And a very funny guy, obviously one of the most successful comedians of all time. Yes. Um, but really, but really, any, I think any, any person that can put emotions on what it means to, to grow up from an abusive family and be able to be the odds and find joy at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, I think can play any, any, any part of me. Well, Peter, I can't thank you enough. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Well, yes. One is, man, whoever you are, you know, we can truly change the lives of children. I've had 32 kids. I've never had one day my kids say, I wish we had a mom. No, they all never had a dad because they have me. They they are absolutely grateful to, to do so. So for me, it's to encourage men. If, you, if you're a dad and you don't know where your kid is, I would say just reach out. And also, if you're a dad, if you're a man and you want to be a dad, that truly you can be a force. Right? It's not just a role for mom, but I think dads, we can play the most amazing part uh, in my kid's life. I can tell you that they are looking for a dad and there's few of us especially to kids in the force care or at home. You know, the other part is remember to use kind, you know, kinds, words of information. When your kid doesn't do well to still say, you're brave that you did that test, you know, be able to be kind and the kids will remember that in every way. Whew. Peter, and what's the name of your foundation? Uh, now I am known foundation. And is that .org or .com? Dot, .org. Now I am dot. known foundation. Foundation. Dot org. org, yes. Anything else, Peter? That's that's pretty much my only prayer is I, I have I want to take these two kids so badly, you know, so my transportation is my greatest need. So just pray that I get it. All right. Well, um uh, we're gonna uh get busy on making a dent in that. So uh, <laughs> give me give me a minute or two, but yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, bless you. Um, thank you. You're an incredible light in the world. You uh, have made a difference to so many and continue to inspire even more. And so um, thank you. And you're welcome back anytime. Please, anytime. And thank you for making us be seen, heard, and known. We, we love you, Christopher, for, for what you do. Uh, and thank you. Yes, sir. Well, I love you back. Thank you. Well, uh, there he is. The legendary uh, Peter Mutumbazi. And uh, I got to tell you, I don't, I don't remember sort of crying that much during a podcast. Maybe I have, but uh, um, incredible. 
Peter's book is called Now I Am Known. You can pick up a copy wherever you get legendary books and, of course, available on Amazon.com. And please, from the bottom of my heart, join me in supporting Peter and his mission. Uh, my wife and I have written a check for them, and we hope to inspire others to follow as well. Peter's foundation is called Now I Am Known Foundation.org. That's Now I Am Known Foundation.org. All right. We would like to thank, thank you. Thank you so much, man. Am I ever glad you were here? And we are so glad you were here for this conversation. I also want to thank our friends, Jessica Morgan and Tom Schwab at Interview Valet for helping to make this episode happen. Thank you so much. Um, you guys are such a great partner to us. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistants. Um, they will uh, get you an assistant who's a real human being, who is powered by technology, who will take care of you and never get anywhere near you. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. Don't forget to join me and a cadre of legendary CIOs at Acceleration Economy's CIO Summit, April 4, 5, and 6, 2023. Registration is free at aeciosummit.com. That's aeciosummit.com. Oh, and uh, your spouse texted and said it's okay. Go ahead and subscribe to Category Pirates. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And uh, please contact your lawyer, shaman, doctor, accountant, mystic, sensei, and importantly, uh, your category designer before acting on any of the information you heard here today. In this oddcast uh, is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. What's one of my top, top, top podcasts? <laughs> they make me laugh every time. Sarah Knox and Jamie J. do our legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes are by the handsome and talented GM Simon. The EX, uh, EX and RJ, <laughs> the, the Bobus brothers themselves, uh, do our web development, and our graphic and web design is uh, provided by the legendary Cedric Biros. All podcasts are recorded in Dolby ADHD, and we record with Squadcast.fm. Our law firm is Wheaton Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Don't forget to listen to Leonard Cohen. KD Lang was right. Remember that everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Andrew Tate. Sorry, Tate. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>